3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome back to Monday Breakfast here on 855am 3CR. You are joined by James, Rob and Grace as always. Starting off with you, Grace, how was your weekend? I think it was pretty good. I was just doing my own thing daily as usual, working and also getting ready yep. for my birthday that's happening next week. It's actually yeah. falling on the Monday. So I've just been um, <laughs> thinking of what to do, what should I do with my friends, um, what food do I get and mm. stuff. So yeah, I've just been prepping for that. Also, um, a bit of stuff regarding journalism as well. But yeah, that will be talked off talked about off air yes so yeah um good news but also kind of s- scary for me at the same time so yeah oh well, that's exciting so, yeah mm. get going for doing an interview basically oh this thursday one. so a bit nervous good so, luck yeah. good luck yeah thank you so much how about you rob what have you been up to uh pretty non-eventful weekend i went to s- i did go to slut walk on saturday um, which was incredible, mm-hmm. and then uh, spent some time at the sit-in, yeah, uh, on the steps of Parliament for a little bit after that. Um, but mostly just staying inside and resting. Really, um, yeah. I watched, <laughs> I watched like half of the the second half of the Hunger Games series Ooh. ahead of the Ooh. new the new movie, and you know I was thinking, like it's pretty like bizarre to me that that movie is like so like communist like Mm, it is like yeah the workers rising up yeah Yeah. i was just watching this i was like i remember reading all of the books in high school and now we didn't think that it was yeah 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 anyway because it was so much about like the dystopic reality, which I thought was pretty cool when I watched it. Mm. I didn't watch I didn't watch all of the entire Hunger Games series, but I did mm. watch the first few ones, and I just thought it was a really, I guess, a good depiction of a reality of act- the actual world. Like it's yeah. kind of like a connotation of what's happening right now. But I mm. thought it was pretty cool. That, I guess, like you mentioned, the communist part. Yeah, I didn't think too much about that, to be honest. Yeah. I also watched... I actually watched The Fight Club. Have you watched The Fight Club? I, mm, I, 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 I didn't mention I really it. want to read the book. Yeah. Oh, there's a book. Yes. I watched the movie. Pretty cool. I uh, I think a lot of things they said in the movie was pretty relatable in a lot of sense. Really mm, funny, yeah. though. Very yeah. funny. Did you, did you know that it's like... Uh, what is it? An, an analogy for being gay and not being able to tell people? No, that, I didn't think of... I think that's... There's, the there's thing a bit of that yeah. in there. There's a bit of yeah. that. Oh, I didn't think to watch I was just watching yeah. it. I was just like, oh, this is a really sick movie. And it's a classic, I would reckon. It's a 1999 film. Yeah. Really, really old. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. Brad Pitt and... 
this other actor sorry i don't yeah, don't edward, know his edward, name edward norton evan norton. oh cool it was really surprising like the way it sets it out and everything but really good movie i reckon yeah i, like, I enjoyed it very much it's one of my favorites i like the anti-consumerist tone in it <laughs> always mm. gets me very excited to mm. see people talking about anti-consumerism on the big screen nice makes me happy mm. Mm. how was your weekend james my weekend was good, very restful. Um, I went to the football yesterday, mm. which was lovely. Saw mm. North Melbourne beat Adelaide by one point at Icon wow. Park to get into the grand final, which was very nice. Mm. And otherwise, just sort of hung about, watched some TV and rested. Nice. and Lots of resting going on at the moment. Yeah, the weather, pretty weather really wasn't it was really good for anything else, to be Probably honest. Probably the other news is I got a new bed. I got a new nice. bed. Because for so long, I've been sleeping in a bed that was too small for me. Mm. My leg's hanging over the edge. <laughs> and so I decided, look, it's time to invest in a new one. And yep. I think the quality of my sleep has improved already. Yep. Which is good, especially if you do a breakfast show early on a Monday. <laughs> you need good quality sleep to be able to do these sorts of yep. things. So there exactly. you go. We're doing yep. well. How about we jump to a couple headlines, team? Yeah, let's do it. It's Yep. So first up, Labor will be committing to $255 million to monitor people who were released from indefinite detention. The joint operation of what's called Operation Edges between Australia Federal Police and Australian Border Force will monitor strict new conditions placed upon the detainee's visa. This happened after the High Court ruled this month in favour of NZYQ, a stateless Rohingya man who was facing prospects of life detention because no countries were agreeing to resettle him. However, following the success of the 20-year precedent in High Court, the government was forced to release 92 detainees. Border Force will receive $150 million for additional staffing in, quote, compliance, removal and surveillance functions, while the Australian Federal Police will receive $88 million for regional response teams and personnel to investigate breaches of visa conditions. Three Palestinian students have been shot in Vermont on their way to a dinner on Saturday night local time. All three are college students and survived the shooting, though two are currently in ICU and a third sustained very critical injuries. The Arab American Discrimination Committee has called on authorities to investigate the shooting as a hate crime. Reports reveal all three victims were wearing kafayas and speaking Arabic on their way to a dinner when a man shouted and harassed the victims before shooting them. Over to the Newcastle port, more than 80 have been arrested after climate protesters continue the blockade past agreed deadline. Groups of protesters took turns paddling out into the port of Newcastle's shipping lane to maintain a 30-hour blockage. New South Wales police have made more than 80 arrests in Newcastle after protesters blocked a major coal port beyond an agreed deadline. In a statement Sunday, New South Wales police said they would allege in court that protesters had entered the Harbour Channel at the port of Newcastle after 30 hours blockage was due to finish despite appropriate warnings and directions. Subsequently, more than 80 persons were arrested and are currently being processed by police. No injuries were reported during the arrest phase, police said in a statement. 
So there you go, gang. Let's jump to a few announcements and then we'll come back with our first interview, the second parter, I believe, with Francesca Albanese. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. It's going to be a hot summer. Yay for summer. Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. So find a shady spot, grab your picnic blanket and gather your mates to get your order in. We're selling delicious wine, generously provided by a Victorian wine producer, just in time for your summer gathering. This is a new provider to us and we know you'll love the wine. Wines can be purchased in a single bottle, a gift pack of three, or get a discount and order in a half dozen or one dozen lot. For an extra $10, we can deliver to anyone within a 15k radius of the station. It's easy to support 3CR this summer. Order online at 3cr.org.au slash shop or call the station on 03 9419 during business hours. In the summer I went swimming, in the summer I might have drowned. But I held my breath, I kicked my feet and I moved my arms around. Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. 1% of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. Change has to come. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. 
This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. The 11th annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices, including $1,000 for best film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter.
about listening to 3CR Breakfast and we've been talking with Francesca Albanese, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in the Palestinian Territory. Let's return to that conversation now. It seems uh, very difficult for the political leaders around the world to separate the politics from the humanitarian aspects of the, mm-hmm. the conflict. Yes, it is. It is, but we should wonder why. And I'm so glad to be in a country where there is such a vibrant civil society which, uh, and also intellectual community which should question these choices. Because this is not just uh, a failure of epic proportions from a humanitarian point of view. This is not just a humanitarian catastrophe. It's also a political catastrophe because it's really, it's really showing the double standards. Of course, of course, there was a need to stand in solidarity with Israel and Israeli people after the attack, but forgetting that there was an, a context that has led to this. It has led to this because, the, the fa- look, there have been provocations and attacks and brutalization and violence against the Palestinians over 56 years of occupation, particularly during the past three decades. Israel has built over 56 years 300 colonies in occupied Palestinian territory, which have this is the this is structural violence because it leads to land confiscation and forced displacement of the of the Palestinians, and this has happened under you you uh, I mean under all under our watch. There is even I mean there are uh, dozens of resolutions of the UN Security Council, hundreds of resolutions of the General Assembly, which have not been respected, and you see these. Uh, this creating a double standards, this speaking international law as a manual la carte, this is really disingenuous and wrong because it creates crack in the, in the system. And why so? In order not to... I see the sensitivities. I see that every word said against Israel is pondered and measured and sanitized. But why? How do we understand also the resentment that this endangers uh, among communities that feel not represented by this kind of, of polit- policies, but also the people in the global south? Because eventually it boils down to these. It's always the West versus the rest. And this, would, this could have been, as I said at the very beginning, an opportunity for the international community to act even-handedly toward the Palestinians and Israelis, and with wisdom, accompanying both of them toward a different path of mutual recognition, or rather, recognition of mutual humanity, rights to live in dignity, freedom, and, and respecting each other. Instead, no. I think that especially Western countries have been... Uh, have made it worse, and as you, I mean, I'm even shocked to see the rise of anti-Palestinian racism and the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of Islamophobia outside Israel, Palestine, and this is this this reflects to how Western societies deal with this issue, which is perceived as intrinsically biased. Thank you. Coming back to the United Nations itself um, as the world's peacekeeping body, it seems it is harder and harder to achieve peace in the world, which is becoming increasingly polarised, increasingly right-leaning. To what extent do you feel that the limitations of the United Nations to effectively achieve and maintain peace are a result of its own structure and mandate? Mm -hmm. 
Or do you feel that the individual members, as we've talked about, are putting their own political wants ahead of the humanitarian values and that this is what is obstructing the UN and its work? I do, I do think that there are structural obstacles, as you say, because the fact that the United Nations Security Council is paralyzed by the veto, veto power uh, member states, and particularly in this case by the U.S. veto. Uh, is, uh, the U- United States have vetoed half of the 70 or over 70 resolutions that have been uh, tabled in the last uh, uh, five, 50 years on uh, Israel, the occupied Palestinian territory. And it continues to do so. But this time, this time, the pro-Israel stance is so abysmally worse than anything that has been done before. So it tampers, it hijacks the United Nations politically, because then the Security Council is paralyzed, but also other other bodies, because you, you might have seen how difficult it was to even uh, endure a pass, um, a general assembly emergency resolution declaring not even this is fire but a truce a mere truce uh, so yes the united nations uh, is is uh, uh, from a political point of view is completely paralyzed and uh, and ineffective as i said i found also that the limitations hampered a proper legal analysis because there have been now it's more clear there are people denouncing the lack of uh, self-defense, but in the beginning it was at the international level my mandate and the Commission of Inquiry on Israel and Palestine who, who denounces say no, there is no such a thing. And then, of course, there have been some humanitarian actors like the Norwegian Refugee Council and others, but otherwise there has been a blind rallying around uh, Israel in, um, in um, joining in using the, uh, the chorus of, yes, this is right to self-defense, and calling for a ceasefire would limit it. No, this is condoning the, the, the use of brute force, and it's a, it's a legitimization of aggression. And then also think from a humanitarian point of view, Claudia, um, it took weeks to, uh, to authorize the entry of a few hundred trucks uh, that have met, as far as I see from the UN reports, 4%, 4% of the needs of a totally distressed population. And uh, so for a few hundred, like 700 trucks have entered the Gaza Strip, only the south, because as you know, as you probably know, Israel has ordered the evacuation of half of the Gaza Strip. Yes. Um, and while while also bombing the south, and the population inside is trapped. So, from a humanitarian point of view, nothing, nothing of what was needed has been done. This has been the most lethal conflict in the United Nations history because 90 UN staff members have been killed together with 200 medical professionals and uh, uh, over 45 journalists. So it's it's extremely, extremely serious, and uh, and people, as I said, struggle asking for a ceasefire, struggle asking for humanitarian corridors that do not uh, become a vehicle for a forcible transfer, because it's clear that, and, and you can get it from Netanyahu's declarations, from the plans that have been circulated, the idea is to push as many Palestinians from Gaza 
out of Gaza. This is why I denounced, look, this is another instance of ethnic cleansing, mass ethnic cleansing under the fog of war, as it has happened in 1947-49, when 750,000 Palestinians were expelled, were made refugees, never allowed to return from modern-day Israel. 80% of the Palestinian refugees worldwide come from <laughs> inside Israel. And then in 1967, when Israel uh, occupied the West Bank is Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, making other uh, 350,000 refugees. This, this is the third instance. But of course, ethnic cleansing has been an ongoing, unfolding reality for the Palestinians that has happened when there was no war through bureaucracy, through withdrawal of residency permits, uh, through uh, home demolitions or declaration of closed military areas. So you see, the fact is that there has been a protracted impunity uh, which has been addressed just by uh, statements here of condemnations here and there. And then we go to the second part of your question, Claudia. Uh, the fact that you said, what, I mean, members, there is also a responsibility of member states. Yes, of course, because the fact that the United Nations Security Council is paralyzed doesn't mean that member states individually or as a spontaneous coalition, as regional organizations, have nothing to do. Because, you know, there, and now, now it's coming up because, for example, there are member states who have uh, um, interrupted diplomatic relations with uh, with uh, with Israel, recalled the ambassadors, um, and. Um and, and they threaten economic sanctions. This is what should be done. When there is a, a level of wrongdoing that amounts to international crimes, here we are also talking of the crime of star intentional starvation, intentional extermination, because bombing a refugee camp where 400 civilians are living, uh, knowing that there is one militant that is to be killed, transforms the entire civilian population into a target. And this might amount my amount to the war crime or intentional extermination. So, and there are many who have denounced the, gen the, the, the unfolding, the possibility that there is a genocide unfolding. And frankly, if you look at the genocidal statement that have been made, made in really, in, in the, 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 now we, we stopped counting them because it's, it's relentless. From political uh, leaders who call the Palestinians animals, all terrorists, there are no civilians, and to, so justifying their erasure, erasure of Gaza and military leaders are saying we are not Knocking the Top Off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia, is a heavily illustrated 67-chapter book co-edited by Alex Etling and Ian McIntyre, delivering an incisive alternative history of Australia from the bottom up. It includes stories ranging from the convict era resistance through to actions by workers, people with disability and anti-fascists today. Alcohol and pubs' many and varied roles in social change, music, art, and more are explored by more than 20 writers. These include Jeff Sparrow, Wendy Bacon, Gary Foley, Diane Kirkby, David Nichols, Tanya Luckins, and Graham Willett. Copies can be purchased directly from 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during office hours. To find out more details or buy the book online, visit interventions.org.au.
a 3CR supporter. Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. 1% of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. Change has to come. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. That was the second part of Claudia Craig's interview with Francesca Albanese, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the human rights situation in the occupied Palestinian territories. You can listen to the full interview on the 3CR website at Wednesday Breakfast page. And now, we'll be going on into our next segment. I'll be speaking to Samantha Florini, who is the program lead of Digital Right Watch, where we'll be discussing AI advocacy and impact of billionaires and policy makers affecting our privacy rights. Good morning, Samantha. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, Samantha, before we head on to questions about privacy rights and also Im- impacts of the billionaires and policymakers. You wrote an opinion piece on The Guardian in regards to uh, Mark Ardenstein's, uh book, sorry, not book, piece about techno-optimist manifesto. So could you tell us what it was uh, generally about? Yeah, absolutely. So Mark Andreessen is a very powerful uh, tech uh uh, venture capitalist for context for people who haven't heard of him before. Um, so he runs a company that is one of the largest um, venture capitalist firms that invests in a lot of tech uh, startups and and ends up sort of, I guess, determining the direction of where um, investment into tech innovation goes and in doing so, like what ends up happening with, um, you know, tech development. So it's quite, a, he's quite a powerful, uh, quite a powerful man. Mm. So he wrote uh, and self-published um, his tech 
Tech Optimist Manifesto a couple of weeks ago now, published it on his website. Honestly, it is absurd. It, <laughs> it is such a um, ludicrous collection of sentences is how I would describe it. But basically his, his argument is that, you know, people who are being um, sceptical of technology or, uh, you know, criticising it are standing in the way of, quote-unquote, progress. And what, you know, what he, it was very clear that he means by that is a very particular form of progress, is a capitalist form of progress. It is one that will make a huge amount of money for its investors and, you know, tech companies and whatnot, but doesn't necessarily uh, translate to social progress or, you know, dealing with a lot of the complex social and political issues that we're facing at the moment. So, so mm-hmm. basically, I read this and I was very frustrated, <laughs> as you can potentially uh, hear in my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the op-ed that I wrote is essentially a defense of tech, techno-criticism, I suppose. It's an encouragement for people to, to continue to think critically about technology, about it, about its you know, its politics and its economy and its history, because we need to be thinking critically about these factors surrounding technology in order to be able to, you know, make sure that we're shaping it in a direction that will be beneficial to, to more than just, you know, <laughs> CEOs and tech billionaires. I really reject the premise that we have to just sort of mindlessly or naively accept the direction that technology is going in and really like we can and should play more of an active role in in being like hang on a second this is actually really harmful we shouldn't be doing this and not just let you know billionaires dictate where our future is headed mm. so why why did, and you mentioned a part where because uh, the suggestions that people ought to be indiscriminately optimistic about the trajectory of technologies is insulting. Could you elaborate a bit more on what did you, did you meant by that? Yeah, so as I said in, in his um, manifesto, he's very, um, very upset <laughs> mm. about uh, you know people being critical about the way that technology is going and, and about, you know, um, suggesting that, you know, that AI um, development should slow down or there should be a pause and things like that. Um, and throughout the piece, he really does suggest that people should just be grateful. You know, people should just, you know, really just welcome with open arms whatever these tech billionaires decide to give to us. Like, that's the tone of the piece is, like, we should be so grateful to them for everything that they are doing for us. And how dare we, you know, question that is really the sort of the, the vibe of it. And so, and it, it is insulting, you know, like, we should be able to uh, think critically about these things, as I said. Um, and, th- and this proposal that we should just be indiscriminately, you know, joyous and grateful and, and happy for whatever tech progress there is, is really is really insulting. And that is because we've seen over, like, time and time again, there are so many different harms that are caused by rampant uh, capitalist tech innovation, you know? Like, we've got, we've got widespread surveillance, we've got data breaches every other day, we've got, you know, bias um, and discrimination in automated 
decision making. Um, we've got you know worsening labour conditions for a lot of workers under the um, under increasing automation. We've got artists who are struggling because of generative AI. Like there are so many examples of how technology is 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 harming, not helping. And so I really reject the premise that we should just be like, great, any tech is good tech. Mm, I see. And then with with this mindsets of the policymakers and the billionaires around the world, Australia has also been com- uh, constantly faced with like the inefficient tech laws. And so we can look at the Privacy Act for this. Like, how 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 has our policy for, uh, how has our policymakers basically been evac- imp- impacting our privacy rights? Yeah, great question. So the Australian Privacy Act is woefully out of date. So this piece of legislation was passed in 1988. Mm. And since then, other than a few small changes, it hasn't really been significantly updated since then. So as you can imagine, a lot has changed since 88. Mm. And now we're faced with just a huge amount of challenges in terms of um, protecting and upholding people's privacy. And when I say that, I don't just mean, you know, protecting my personal data and your personal data as separate individuals. I mean that, you know, there is a real collective impact that is happening when everyone's data on a societal level is being collected, shared and monetized. It's really changing the power dynamic between everyday people and companies and governments. And so one of the key ways that we can fight back and that we can sort of remedy this is to look at the way that data is being collected and used and by protecting our privacy. So currently there is a process of review happening to reform our Privacy Act. This has been happening for, or the review process has been happening for close to three years. And it's also not the first time that we've seen this kind of process happen. But we are closer than ever to getting the government to finally act to reform the Privacy Act. So what we're hoping for is that there's quite a few significant changes to the Privacy Act to better protect everyday people and to mean that uh, that, um, governments and companies who are the ones who are collecting our our personal information have to bear the responsibility of making sure that they are doing so fairly and reasonably. So it's it's unclear exactly when this is going to happen, but, you know, groups like Digital Rights Watch have been campaigning for a while and will continue to do so, and we're anticipating hopefully seeing them draft legislation in 2024. Mm. Hopefully it happens, it starts to have some progress by next year. And, <laughs> yeah. and Sam, you're actually attending a summit tomorrow, tomorrow in Sydney to talk about AI and advocacy. And so... Uh, but generally, what are you going to be discussing about to help people understand more f- about like their rights? Yeah, so I'm headed to a summit, which is the, the International Association of Privacy Professionals. So I will be talking to a lot of privacy nerds, and I say that lovingly. I'm also one, um, and policymakers and so on, and talking about. Um, Yeah, talking about AI and specifically how that interacts with our privacy. Now, something that I think is important to understand is that our current state of artificial intelligence is really predicated upon all of that data being able to be collected over over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years or so, which happened largely without much regulation. You know, these companies really 
succeeded under surveillance capitalism to hoover up heaps and heaps and heaps of data. At the same Mm. time, they were able to increase their computing power. And these two things have met at this current moment, which is allowing for AI to become uh, as big of a deal as it currently is, you know, our current AI Mm. hype moment. Um, So basically what I'm saying is that AI, as we currently understand it, relies upon the invasion of people's privacy. And so we absolutely have to be grappling with the question of, you know, is that okay? What does it mean for people's privacy to have all of their data fed into AI systems? And how might that end up negatively impacting people? So that's the kind of thing that I'll be talking about um, uh, the next few days. I'll also be talking more, more generally about the role of advocacy and pushing for change, mm-hmm. um, not just in privacy, but in other areas of digital rights and technology. So yeah, it'll, it'll be an interesting time, I think. That's perfect. Oh, Sam, I assume you just summed off a question. Sorry, it might sound a bit jump off a topic again, but be, why do you think the these tech billionaires are so scared of the of technology and AI, and and hence causing them to think that uh, of like we should be optimistic about the trajectory of technology, but also at the same time, like they they have a bit of like fear and doubts, but also I guess a lot of mixed reactions towards this. Why do you think they have this kind of reactions? Yeah, it sounds like you're talking a bit about um, some of the sort of. Um, the big existential risk stuff that was circulating a little while ago and still pops its head up where, you know, um, these CEOs and billionaires are really, you know, talking about how AI is going to be a big threat to humanity Mm. and it's going to kill us all and all of that, you know, very like Terminator Mm. kind of style of fears. Um, What I would say about that is that it is an extremely effective marketing ploy for them to push that line because they pair it with something along the lines of like, you know, but we are the responsible shepherds of this technology. You can trust us to make sure that we, that AI is for the good of humanity as long as we get the the power and the market dominance and the low regulation environment to do it. You know, they, they really sort of talk out of both sides of their mouths when, when talking about the fears of, of um, you know AI becoming sentient and, and, and taking over, so I would I would caution people to be really really skeptical when you hear people talking about that fear because it really it it works in those companies' own interest to peddle that. The other thing that I would say is that you know you're much less likely to hear these people talking about and by these people I mean you know, tech billionaires, CEOs, peddlers of the AI. Um, industry, um, you're much less likely to hear them talking about the, the very real material and current risks of harm to people caused by AI. So things like, you know, using an automated decision-making system with machine learning to decide whether you get a house or to decide what your insurance, insurance premium is or to decide whether you're um, eligible for social welfare. You know, these kinds of things are already really impacting people's lives and causing immense amounts of harm, but they're not the things that these billionaires and CEOs are worried about. You know, they're happy to direct our attention towards this big, scary sci-fi future Mm. while, you know, obfuscating 
the, the, the real material issues that are happening right now. So, again, I would caution people to think very critically when they hear that kind of misdirection. That's uh, that's awesome, Sam. Uh, Sam, so unfortunately, you're going to be running out of time very soon. So I just want one last question from you. So obviously, uh, there'll be a, quite a few people here in Victoria who might not be able to attend the summit tomorrow to listen to you to, um, uh, ex- deliver about how to pr- protect our protect our rights, basically. So is there any guidance on at the, on Digital Rights Watch uh, webpage that people could access and understand? Help to, yes. yeah. yeah, so there's lots of different resources and, you know, documents and things like that on the Digital Rights Watch website. People can head to www.digitalrightswatch.org.au. We've got guides there. We've got submissions, all kinds of things. Um, we're also on social media. People can follow us and they can message us if there's anything that they want to talk about in particular. I'm always very happy to chat with people about things like this. And we do... Um, a lot of our work really runs on, on donation. So if, if mm. people are feeling generous, they can always do that too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Okay. And that was Samantha Florini, the program lead at Digital Right Watch, discussing about AI advocacy and impacts of billionaires and policymakers affecting our privacy rights. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates 
on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates, and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos, and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary, the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on report from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Arm, woman liberationist, and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. That was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by the legendary Gil Scott Heron. 
And now we're going to be joined by Dr. Lisa Anderson, who is an honorary professor at the Federation Uni of Australia and a past fellow of the Australian Museum and the University of Technology in Sydney. She has developed work which delves into hidden stories, remote expeditions and climate change through traces and markings of the environment, geography, people and animals. Her latest exhibition, Beguiling, is a multimedia exhibition including both images and videos exploring the parallel elements of beauty and destruction through the Anthropocene. Dr. Lisa Anderson, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Uh, so your latest exhibition, Beguiling, explores the Anthropocene in terms of its beauty and its destruction. So just to set the scene, what exactly is the Anthropocene? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, it's, uh, the, it's the time we live in now because it's actually about um, uh, the destruction that we cause, in a sense, it's uh, it's when humans begin to influence the shape of the world. Mm. So that previous scenes, so to speak, were all named after what was shaping the world at that time. Whether it was little gribblies in the mud coming out of the mud and becoming something else, or you know, dinosaurs doing whatever dinosaurs did. So all of those times were named after what was having the big influence. So the Anthropocene is saying that we now have the biggest influence. You know, we're all over the planet doing things to it. Mm, humans are changing the world. Yeah. Um, so what exactly is it about the Anthropocene that made you want to dedicate a whole exhibition to it? Um, well, I guess uh, as a word that's not incredibly important in some ways with the show, but the idea is, to look at what we're doing. Um, and so in questioning the Anthropocene, it is about looking at our actions and realising over time, and I've spent about 20 years going backwards and forwards between Antarctic and Arctic regions and looking at landscapes, um, some of which don't exist anymore, through the photographs and images that I've made there, videos and things, um, often working with science crews and um, expedition teams do it on particular tasks. So it's it's been a quite a fascinating time. And then during COVID, um, when we had to work with what we had, I simply had all these images on different data things that I'd never downloaded, I'd never had time before. Mm. So sitting down and being able to look through them and go, oh, that, that probably doesn't exist anymore. That chunk of ice shelf has fallen off. You know, it was a big thing. It broke away. And, you know, looking at those things and realising that it's our destruction that, that's causing these issues. So in the images, whenever I've just presented in beautiful Beautiful, absolutely beautiful images of the ice and of those remote locations. People end up quite enthralled by them, by the beauty of them, by the sense of landscape of them. But what I wanted to say was a bit more than that. I wanted to say that humans are almost by nature extractive beasts. So we kind of look at something as though we own it. For no good reason. We we look at landscape as something we own. If you look at great historic landscape pictures, they're all about, you know, man owns this. 
man controls this. So we're we're very um, abusive of the world around us in many ways. And I wanted to bring that out. So what I did was looking at the idea of the doomsday clock, which is counting down mm. um, our time um, for the planet. Um, looking at those things, I started using timing fuses, votive candles, and burning them across the images. So the images in the show that you see are not just beautiful images of the ice, but I've scarred them with burns, with melting candle wax, with text cut into them with burning sticks. It's So there are all these things to do with how we measure time that are destructive um, in their nature. So that's the beguiling part, because beguiling is... You fall in love with it. You adore it. It's fantastic. You know, you, you need to follow this around, but there's something wrong. There's always a but with beguiling. It's mm-hmm. not, you know that there's something's not really going to go right here, but you can't help yourself. You're in love with it. Mm. Uh, well, that's fantastic. Um, and when we think of the Anthropocene, often we, we think of destruction pretty quickly, which you draw on in your work. But you also draw on beauty when it comes to the Anthropocene. How exactly does beauty come into the equation here? Well, the landscapes themselves are incredibly beautiful. That Mm. ice is amazingly beautiful. The images are gorgeous. If you think about um, the beautiful, say, um, sunsets that we get, I live in St Kilda, the beautiful sunsets you get in St Kilda, they're gorgeous, the colours. Gorgeous sunsets you see over Mumbai and places like that, it's because of the pollution in the air. Mm. They're utterly beautiful, you know. You watch these purples and reds and they're, they're just extraordinary. They're so beautiful. But it's because of the pollution. Mm. So that's beauty, but it's also our destructiveness and, and trying to add those things together. So some of the things that I wanted to do with this, because I did it as the Rupert Bunning Fellow for Port Phillip, was to... Um, bring sheet at home to us. So look at a way of bringing home this idea of what we do here and what we do there are both important and we have to act on that in some way. I don't know how, I'm not a scientist, um, but trying to present some of the ideas and ways of, of counting, of looking and of thinking about what we do so what I did was I went around and started photographing Port Phillip. Um, and then when I found, when I started burning the images, I decided that would actually, because the point, it would not be good. People wouldn't get it. Mm. Um, burning um, Lunar Park down was not going to look good even in a photograph. You know, people would go, what? <laughs> yeah. So all of, all of that seems a little bit odd. So what I did was work... Um, with infrared, and which I've used before, but I did something wrong this time. I did something wrong with one of the filter changes that I had to make. And so instead of being a true infrared, there's hints of it in it, there's this red colour that's extraordinary. Mm. And I just saw that and loved it. It was a beautiful red. And people who looked at it said, that's bushfire red. That's the red of the burning beach in Malakuta. Mm. So all of those things. So it sucked us straight back to this, we get it. We get, we understand we're in fire. 
they're in fire. It's, you know, we're doing these things to the planet. And, you know, how do we react to that? So that's that's how I was trying to sheet it around for people to understand. Uh, it sounds beautiful. It sounds really beautiful. I can see why beauty is definitely a part of it. Um, these things are often awe-inspiring, even though they are quite um, saddening or, or inspire a bit of despair. Um, on that note of despair, um, are you hopeful when it comes to the Anthropocene, and does the idea of hope feature in the Beguiling exhibition much? It does, but hope's a delicate thing, and it comes hope comes from different elements in it. But there are moments where, um, like in the video work, where you realise... You know, like at the end of one of the scenes of, of, you know, the ice is spinning out of control and it's all animated and there's the swamp gases dancing across the ice. And then as the ice curls around, it turns into a, a fetus. So it's a, it's, a, it's a future. There is a future there. It is a rebirth possibility. And one of the images in the, in the works is um, Aurora, which is a... A neon piece and it's about the dawn Aurora was the goddess of dawn so it's um, it has that sense that this light, this is where we come from, this is where we go back to, this is how we surround ourselves and understand the story of what's happening in these pictures and each one when you go to see the exhibition underneath there's a little text, it's a tiny story about the making of the image and what I was thinking about when I was making it. Because often you use, I find anyway, that I use ideas and stories to influence how I make the work, um, which is important to me. It may, It's not just the story that I'm telling in the making of the, in the work, though. What you see might be something completely different to what I was thinking about as I was making it. Because the thinking through... The making is important to me, pretty clearly, but um, things happen along the way. Mm. Uh, so you but, use them. <laughs> uh, fantastic. And we're, we're coming up on time now, so I'd just like to ask one more question. Uh, when it comes to people coming to see your exhibition, what, does, what, what sort of impression would you like to leave on them as they come and go throughout the art? Um, I think a love of our planet, mm. to actually see the beauty and to understand where the tricksters in the in the in the equation, um, because that's that's kind of what I'm saying. We're the trickster, mm. and every culture has tricksters, and it's worth worth having a look and we'll see what you think about tricksters. Fantastic! Thank you so much, Dr. Lisa Anderson. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and thanks for coming on today. Okay, take care, James. Thank you. That was Dr. Lisa Anderson, an honorary professor at the Federation University of Australia, um, and her latest exhibition, Beguiling, is a multimedia exhibition including both images and videos exploring the parallel elements of beauty and destruction through the Anthropocene. And you can catch the Beguiling exhibition, which is open from Wednesday the 8th of November 2023 to Thursday the 4th of Jan 2024, hosted by the Victorian Pride Centre at 79 to 81 Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. And for more info, you can go to the Pride Centre's website, uh, pridecentre.org.au slash visual art slash beguiling.
Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Welcome back to Radical Radio on 3CR. This is Monday Breakfast with Rob, James and Grace. Saturday the 25th of November marked the first of 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. As such, from then until the 10th of December, 3CR will be playing segments around about gender-based violence and other, and other relevant subjects every day at around 8am. Today, though... We will be playing excerpts from Saturday's Slut Walk rally. For those of you who don't know, Slut Walk is an international movement calling for abusers to be held accountable as well as an end to slut shaming and victim blaming. It began in Toronto, Canada back in 2011 when a Toronto City police officer responded to campus rape at a York University by saying women should avoid dressing like sluts in order not to be victimised. First up, we will hear from Hoda of a NAM-based art collective, Feminista Melbourne, which is a grassroots collective of artists and activists who found each other during the Women Life Freedom protests late last year. I'm putting a content warning for these next two segments, as they do include mentions of violence and harassment towards women and children, including their deaths as well. 
four years ago. I'm an Iranian woman. Just these two words sitting next to each other brings up so many problems. As an Iranian woman, we are forbidden from dancing on or singing solo in public. We don't have the right to ride a motorbike or to even watch men's sport at arenas. We cannot become a judge or a president. We only can travel abroad with our husband's permission. Post-1979 compulsory hijab laws affect virtually every aspect of women's life in Iran. I am going to explain this a little bit. We are forced to cover our bodies and hair from non-mahram or strangers, which means we must cover ourselves from the age of nine from any man who is not our uncle, father, or brother. We are women who cannot have sex before marriage. We are labeled as sluts if we do it. We might risk our lives for it. If we get divorced, we will not have custody of our children. In today's Iran, a woman's access to employment, education, or even her public presence in society depends on complying with compulsory hijab laws. September 22, a 22-year-old woman named Mahsa Amini was beaten to death by the morality police. She was killed brutally only because she was showing a strand of hair. The morality police believes in a concept called Amre be ma'ruf and nahi az monker. This translates to encouraging good and discouraging and preventing sinful behavior. They believe by arresting girls, teenagers, and women and telling them what to wear, they allowing themselves to speak out about women's choice of clothes Oh, sorry, this is too much. <sighs> to supposedly protect them. They believe women need to cover themselves to avoid injury or rape. They claim to know what the best for women. However, the battle against this ideology largely fought by individuals, millions of women, both activists and civilians. I am so proud of every single woman who is showing protest in any way. So brave, so bold. <laughs> Controlling women's bodies and their clothes is the foundation of abuse violence and gender apartheid in my home country, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is not an actual republic country, but a dictatorship. We as women blame ourselves. <sighs> we as women blame ourselves 
for our appearance if someone assaults us in the street. We think that it was my fault. If I covered my hair and didn't show the curves of my body, that man wouldn't get aroused by me and rape, assault, and oppression would not happen to us. Don't you think this mindset oppresses men too? The fact is that the street should be safe for any woman to wear whatever she chooses. Only recently I realized that I love showing off my curves. I love to be free in my dress, wearing backless dresses, like the one I'm wearing today. I am not a fan of wearing bras. My tits are part of my body's reaction to chillness, right? Why am I ashamed of, of them? I will show them, and I will proud of them. This is what my mother taught me when I was growing up and my body was developing. She told me never to hide my breasts. She always told me to sit straight and show my chest with pride. These words came from a woman who lived her whole life in Iran, my role model. So I'm just delivering my mom's word to you today as you can pass them on to your children. Love your body, be proud of yourself, love all the human beings around you, and don't be ashamed, don't be silent about it, and speak up if someone tries to steal your beauty. Thank you so much for listening. That was the first part of our recording from Slutwalk from Saturday. That was Hoda, who is a part of a non-based art collective, Feminista Melbourne. We'll be back with the second part shortly. The 11th annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices, including $1,000 for best film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. We are back going to our second part of a segment from Saturday's Slut Walk. This time we'll be hearing from Sherelle Moody, who is an Australian femicide and child death researcher. She's the creator of the world's only memorial to women and children lost to violence and the groundbreaking Australian femicide and child death map. Again, I'm putting a content warning for this segment as it contains mentions of violence and harassment towards women and children, including the names of their deaths as well towards the end of this segment. Aboriginal land! Always 
Hey guys, um, yeah, there some pretty powerful speeches that are awesome and I don't even think I'm going to come anywhere near that level of passion. Um, so yes, at the end of the speech there will be a list of names read, um, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Sorry. <laughs> Recently I was speaking to a colleague who was thinking of making a film about a murdered woman here in Melbourne. The young woman in question was killed by someone she barely knew in her own home. He'd broken in in the middle of the night and took her life uh, while she was sleeping in her own bed. Um, my colleague said to me, she's an innocent victim. People will really relate to her story because she didn't know him. She's an innocent victim. Can you think of any woman who deserved to be killed? This um, colleague's comment about this woman's innocence unwittingly um, put blame on every other woman killed in Australia. She believed the story would resonate because in her words, the woman killed did nothing to deserve being murdered. Women being uh, labelled complicit in their own um, violent deaths is not unusual, but it shows how commonplace victim blaming is when women are lost to violence. Every time a woman is killed in Australia, victim blaming raises its ugly head. A woman is killed by her current or former partner. She must have done something to rile him up. She must have withheld the children. She must have withheld sex. She pressured him financially, trod on his fragile ego, and so on, so on. A woman is killed by a man she rejected. She led him on. She should have led him down gently. She was asking for it. A woman is killed by her son. She must have abused him. She must have withheld her love. A woman is killed by her colleague. She took his job. She was too bossy. He loved her, but she refused to love him back. A woman is killed by a stranger. She chose to be out late at night. She chose to walk alone in the dark. She chose to wear a short skirt. She chose to talk to him. This victim blaming is not new. It's been going on for centuries. For as long as men have been killing women, we've had victim blaming. Over the past eight or so years, I've documented more than 2,500 killings of women and children in Australia. In that time, as part of my research, I've had to read article upon article upon article about women murdered. Articles dating back to white settlement. And that common theme of what did she do to provoke him or what was she wearing always raised its head. Every time I post about a woman killed, there's an influx of comments asking what was she doing when she was killed? How did she provoke him? Yes, it's almost always a him. And there's also the ubiquitous, not all men and women do it too. <laughs> These last two phrases are the most common things I hear every day. The victim blaming, the minimizing of violent behaviors and the misnomers about the drivers and causes of violence are not changing no matter how many women are killed in our country. The other thing that's barely changing, the levels of fatal violence against Australian women. As I speak, as of today, 66 Australian women have been lost to acts of violence in this country 
one of those women was killed overseas. More women have been murdered in the past 11 months and two weeks than at the same time last year. And I'm wondering how many of these victims you've actually heard of. How many of you knew that 66 women are dead? Probably not many, hey? The reality is that every woman killed in, not every woman killed in Australia receives media attention. And that's why you don't know, because there's not much reporting on their deaths. There's rarely candlelight vigils and almost never words of sympathy from our leaders. They are, for the most part, the invisible victims. They're the women whose headlines are scant and the community outrage is even less. It's a sad truth, but most women killed in Australia are too old, too indigenous, too ethnic, too poor, too homeless, too addicted, too ill, too disabled, simply too marginalised for community for community uh, media and political outrage. In other words, if any of you are killed tomorrow, it's likely there won't be much media, much media coverage because you do not fit the profile of the perfect victim. I don't begrudge the intense focus on particular victims. They deserve it, but so too does every other woman killed. From mums and grandmothers to babies and teenagers, these are the women and children we have lost to acts of violence in 2023. Uh, just a note, there are 10 children killed this year, so I also document the deaths of children, so their names were included in the list. Um, the list also contains um, the deaths of Indigenous women, and in some cases their names are shared with family permission. These are the women and children killed across Australia since January 1. Trish Lamborn, 61, Edwardstown, South Australia. Noah Smith, 15, Yamba, New South Wales. Georgia Lyle, 32, South Guildford, Western Australia. Jai Anderson, 17, Waterford West, Queensland. Crystal Monks, 19, Bundamba, Queensland. Heather Ball, 27, Caboolture, Queensland. Dana Isaac, 28, Penrith, New South Wales. Anastasia Slastion, 30, Greystains, New South Wales. Kerry Bodney, 31, Bulga, Western Australia. Tatiana Tanya Dokotaru, 34, Liverpool, New South Wales. Unnamed woman, 34, Lenora, Western Australia. Emma Rich Lasaka, 35, Dale, Western Australia. Jacqueline Jackie Lee Purton, 37, Campania, Tasmania. Monique Lezak, 37, Endeavour Hills, Victoria. Rebecca Kluwer, 40, Ayrds, New South Wales. Hannah Pringle, 41, Abbotsford, Victoria. Erin Mullavey, also known as Gilbert, 42, Marylands, New South Wales. Elaine Naraldol, 51, Darwin, Northern Territory. Unnamed woman, 53, Perth, Western Australia.
Margaret Margs Smetheram, 56, Kalanga, Queensland. Lisa Fenwick, 59, Mascot, New South Wales. Wendy Sleeman, 61, Eleonora, Queensland. Lindy Lucina, 64, Ballina, New South Wales. Lynn Wright, 65, Atherton, Queensland. Claire Nowland, 95, Cooma, New South Wales. Unnamed boy, one years old, Barara Heights, New South Wales. Unnamed child, three years old, Alban Vale, Victoria. Alexis Picatos, three years old, Riverwood, New South Wales. Christy Armstrong, 36, Molong, New South Wales. Ethan Ho, 14, St Albans, Victoria. Ronan Davies, 17 months, Glenelg North, South Australia. Maria Ivan Kovic, 81, Maribyrnong, Victoria. Amira Mogne, 30, Bexley, New South Wales. Kamanjai Skeen, 45, Dilmingan, Northern Der Territory. Christine Formosa Rakic, 53, Ruti Hill, New South Wales. Unnamed Woman, 47, Alice Springs, Northern Territory. Alexandra Vergulis, 51, Campbelltown, South Australia. Unnamed Woman, aged in her 30s, Kununurra, Western Australia. Gypsy, Gypsy Satterley, 25, Federal, Queensland. Jessica Townley, 38, Federal, Queensland. Linda Kerr, 74, Kawana, Rockhampton, Queensland. It's a long list. Cheyenne Lee Tatnell, 14, Launceston, Tasmania. And I do appreciate people hanging around for this. Um, it's just a few more minutes, and I think all of these women need to have their names read. I, I mean, if we can't spare a couple of minutes for this, what can we spare a couple of minutes for? Jean Morley, 92, Fisher, Australian Capital Territory. Tiffany Woodley, 35, Bedford, Western Australia. Marie Vermont, 60, Goldie, Victoria. Taylor Cox, 30, Park Avenue, Queensland. Murphy Margaret Cox, one of our youngest victims, 11 weeks old. She died with her mum, Taylor, at Park Avenue, Queensland. Trey Johnston Piggott, 16, Corindy Beach, New South Wales. Drew Douglas, 31, St Mary's, New South Wales. Lisa Muliaga, unknown age, Melton, South Victoria. Suandi Kumari, an Australian resident in Singapore, killed overseas. Pasam Lim, 16, Sunshine, Victoria. Unnamed woman, 37, Kasarina, Northern Territory. Janet Guthrie, 51, Bongaree, Queensland. Joan Hobbs, 89, Kirawi, New South Wales. Unnamed woman, 40, Hoppers Crossing, Victoria. Catherine Safranco, 61, Bankstown, New South Wales. You, Grace Zhu, unknown age, Riverwood, New South Wales. Heather Dean, 73, Glenella, Queensland. Galit Carbone, killed in Israel South. Rebecca Collard, Valcata, Western Australia. Crystal Marshall, Aldinga Beach, South Australia. Tai Tu Huang Nen, 65, Bruce, ACT. Lily James, 21, Sydney, New South Wales. Annalyn Logie Osias, 46, Kangaroo Flat, Victoria. 
Alice Rose McShearer, 34, Burwood, Western Australia. Deidre D. Fulp, 60, Musselbrook, New South Wales. Gail Patterson, 70, Leon Gather, Victoria. Heather Wilkinson, 66, Leon Gather, Victoria. Unnamed woman, 37, Footscray, Victoria. Unnamed woman, 45, Port Augustus, South Australia. Julianne Egan, 63, Beckenham, Western Australia. Unnamed woman, 39, Morfitt Vale, South Australia. Jodie Jewell, unknown age, Modbury, South Australia. An unnamed woman, 44, Felix Stowe, South Australia. For me, every single one of these victims matter. When a woman is killed, I want you to know she matters. I want our political leaders to know she matters. But most importantly, I want their family, their friends and their communities to know that she matters. Um, if you're interested in more of my work, just follow me on the socials or check out AustralianFemicideWatch.org. Thank you. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Sherelle Moody's speech from Saturday's Slutwalk Rally. Sherelle Moody is an Australian femicide and child death researcher. Towards the end there, you heard the names of the 66 women lost to violence in Australia this year. If that content affected you at all, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. Well done. Great show today, everybody. We're just about up on time. But before we go, what's on for your weekend, Grace? Prepare for my interview. I think that's the most nervous. Yeah, I think that's the nerve-wracking thing for me at the moment. Yeah. But also, I'll be going to watch Post Malone's concert. Ah. So I'm really excited for that. I was supposed to go to the weekends one as well, but that got delayed. So yeah, mm. that's what I'm looking forward to. Fantastic. How about you, Rob? What's on for your week? Um, not much. Just more lifting weights until my comp, and then just resting. Fantastic. Uh, my week. Um, I don't know. A bit of reading, a bit of learning, a bit of this, a bit of that. I reckon. Mm. Not yes. too much. So you've been listening to Monday Breakfast. We're here every Monday. Thanks for listening, and have a good week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.